are uh, three subjects that every preacher and pastor just loves, loves, loves to preach on. I roll. Submission, it's a good time. Financials, even better, right? Money. And sex and sexuality, uh, which is what we're doing today. Um, and so it's, uh, it's going to be a good time. Um, but every, uh, every time I, I preach on a subject, because I've been here uh, uh, this month, 17 years, so I've, I preach a lot of sermons. I usually go back and I'll just kind of re-examine what, what we did last time on it. And um, when I went back and re-examined what we did last time, every bit, every bit of it was true, but I couldn't believe how quickly the culture has shifted on this subject. It doesn't compare to any other subject that we talk about here. When I go back and look at money or submission or any of these other kind of hot topics, no subject in our culture has changed as fast and as abruptly as sex and sexuality and marriage. And so our culture has um, real strong opinions on what we're going to talk about today. Um, Spoiler alert, so does God's word. Um, and, And so God's word has a lot to say on this subject as well. And what my goal today is I think as we talk about lust in particular, we're also going to talk a little bit about marriage and stuff. I want to take kind of a high view because I want us to understand that God has a plan and a way for a reason. Sometimes we don't understand the reason, and I think it leads us to misunderstand marriage and misunderstand the subject of lust and misunderstand sex and sexuality because we don't really understand what God is trying to do through marriage and sex. And so we're going to take a real kind of high view today. At one point in the sermon, we're going to work our way uh, kind of through several ideas. And I just, my goal is at the end of this, you would, I, I just want you to see what God is trying to accomplish through marriage uh, and through sex and sexuality. And so hopefully we accomplish it. Um, if we don't, I'm going to be canceled for sure. Um, so hopefully we accomplish it. All right? If we accomplish it, I won't be canceled. If we don't accomplish it, I won't be here next Sunday. So, all right, let's... Uh, So let's pray together, and we'll get into it. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you uh, for his teaching uh, on this subject, Uh, not just Jesus' teaching, but really throughout the whole Bible, Um, your your thoughts and your perspective on marriage and sex and sexuality and all of this. Um, I pray that I would be out of your way, um, and for something that is uh, a really hot topic in our culture, I want to pray that as your people that this wouldn't be that hot of a topic. That we just be like, this is what your word says and, and this is what you say and we have an understanding now of what you're trying to accomplish through marriage and sex and sexuality and so we want to abide by not just your word, of course we want to abide by your word, we want to abide by your will and we want to join you in what you're trying to accomplish. So help us to do that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Has desire ever led you astray? Why to think about that for a moment? I'm talking about desire in uh, any kind of subject. Has desire ever led you astray? When I was in my early 20s, I had just taken a job as an admissions recruiter, and uh, my boss had kind of determined that in order to do all the traveling for this job, I needed a new car. Uh, and so he went with me, and we started shopping uh, for a new car, and my dad had always worked for 
uh, GM, Oldsmobile, uh, the Oldsmobile Intrigue, which uh, came out forever ago, but it was a pretty car. It was really pretty. Uh, and I wanted it bad. And so I went, and we were talking about doing a lease. And I remember there came a moment where I'm like, comparable to my income, which was quite low, um, this seems like a really high car payment. And I forget, the, the guy that was with me, he, he said these words, Steve, it's just money. It, that's all. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. Where do I sign? It's, and I discovered in that moment, it is not just money. It is peace of mind. It is happiness. It is being able to uh, uh, save for future retirement, right? It's, it's a lot of things. It's not just money. And maybe there, and I look, I look at that and I was like, man, I got so kind of captivated by that car. Because at the end of the lease, I'd way gone, gone way over my miles. So then I had to like buy that car uh, for a terrible amount of money and a terrible car payment. And it, it just was an awful situation. I said, man, that, that started with desire, seeing a car that was pretty. And maybe uh, you have an experience like that of, with a purchase. And you're like, man, I'm making low monthly payments. Jesus is going to return. I'll make my last payment, right? That, that's how long I'm going to be making payments. And it just, you would say, man, that was a terrible decision that started with a desire. Maybe it's an addiction to something, food, drink, whatever, and you're like, man, this thing has taken hold of my life. And I can see now that it started, right, before it ever became a problem, it started with a simple desire for a thing. And maybe right now you're here today and it's an internal desire, uh, something or someone uh, th that you find yourself desiring that hasn't crossed the line yet. One of my prayers today, my secondary prayer today from what we talked about earlier, is that maybe today would be a wake-up call to, that we need to pay attention to our desire. Um, when it comes to the deadly sin of lust, I think this is exactly where Jesus is going to lead us today, that, that lust as a desire has the potential to lead us away from what God is trying to do in our world but especially what God is trying to do through the institution of marriage. Take a look at this clip. Who can resist Gaston, right? I mean, it's, it's, it would be hard to. Uh, I want to show you this uh, passage of scripture from Proverbs 6. Uh, Proverbs 6 is written uh, from uh, a male perspective, getting war warning uh, to a male, but it could just as be, uh, easily be written from a female perspective. And it's warning us against the sin of lust, and in particular, uh, sexual sin. So let's take a look at it. My son, uh, keep your father's commands. Scott mentioned next Sunday is Father's Day, so it's a good admonition. Keep your father's command. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Uh, listen to your mom and dad on this subject. Bind them as always on your bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you, and when you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp, and teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. Keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman, do not lust in your heart after, your, after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger while he was starving. 
Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whatever he does, whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bride, bribe, bribe, however great it is. Proverbs 6. I saw a recent study that showed that around 17,000 deer are killed each year in the state of Illinois. Right? I always chuckle. I had a friend that was complaining about never being able to find a deer to, to shoot up in Michigan. And it's like, I'm looking out my office window right now. I could strangle one to death right now if I wanted to. Right? You know, they're all over. But, you know, 17,000 a year are hit just by automobiles in the state of Illinois, particularly in the fall. And the reason that happens so much in the fall, has anyone ever hit a deer in the fall? Just out of curiosity, a couple of you. All right? The, the reason that happens is that the fall uh, is the mating season for deer. And they are so concentrated on their reproduction that they fail to see your flashing lights and your blaring horn. Right? It is a lesson for us. Pay attention to our desires. So, and that's what Proverbs 6 is all about. And I think it's easy, I think it would be easy for us to accept that in our culture, the physical act of an affair is still seen as wrong. It's certainly easy to see in Proverbs 6, there's this imagery of heaping fire on yourself, destruction from this act of adultery, and some of you have personally experienced the pain of this issue, the pain of adultery, and the jealousy it created, and the hurt it created, and the pain. They are very, very real in, in your life. And, and others of us, we've seen this play out with political leaders time and time again, celebrities, recently a famous uh, podcast couple, and our culture doesn't really shy away from this idea that adultery, at this point in our culture, adultery is still seen as wrong, as a sin, as a problem. I think where the Christian perspective might begin to differ from our culture is what Jesus teaches on this issue of the deadly sin of, of lust, and in particular, his words in the book of Matthew. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So when we look at Jesus' words in conjunction with Proverbs 6, I, I think we want to kind of start out with an understanding of what lust is that Jesus is describing. That lust is not simply noticing that someone is attractive. Lust is not identifying someone as, as good-looking. The Greek word for lust that Jesus uses is most often translated as desire. So one of the usages of this word, it's translated a little bit differently though, is that right before Jesus goes to the cross, he sits down for a meal with his disciples and he says these words to his disciples in Luke 22. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That, that word, eagerly desire, is the Greek word for lust. So lust carries with it the idea of eagerly desiring something 
or someone. Lust on its own does not have anything to do with sexuality. If you really wanted a Wendy's cheeseburger or a Domino's pizza or cheesecake for the Cheesecake Factory, you could say, man, after church, I am lusting for a burger. Don't do that. It's creepy, but you could. It would be grammatically correct in the Greek to say, man, I really am lusting after a Domino's pizza or a piece of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Super creepy. Don't use it that way. But Lust means desire. That's all it is. And in the context of what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew, talking about adultery and sexuality, for our purposes, lust would be a sexual desire towards someone that is not your spouse. And here's the question. Why does Jesus care? Why does God care? I think most of our culture would say that lust feels like a victimless crime. So why on earth is Jesus kind of banging on it and preaching against it and telling us not to go down this path? Why does God care about a seemingly victimless crime? And I think we want to push back on that just for a moment, that it's a victimless crime. This isn't what this sermon is about, but you can do a search and you can find a lot of articles about the financial ties between the pornography industry, the lust industry, and the funding of sexual slavery in this country and across the world. So I think the idea, first of all, that it's just a totally innocent, victimless crime is probably not true. But beyond that, and this is what we really want to center on today, I think that we misunderstand, when we misunderstand lust, we misunderstand what God is trying to do through marriage in our world. We misunderstand what God is trying to accomplish through marriage. And, and, and when we understand that, we understand that lust is not helpful in accomplishing God's mission through marriage and through life in general and through what he's trying to accomplish in the world. So if you'll walk with me just for, this is gonna take about five minutes, but I want, you to, I want to walk with you a little bit through this idea of what God is trying to accomplish through marriage. And I think we'll find it quite eye-opening when it comes to lust, that one of the metaphors in the Old Testament between God and Israel is that they are his chosen people, but the other image is that God is the groom and Israel is the bride. There's this marriage imagery that works through the Old Testament. And it was meant to show Israel's neighbors, this marriage between Israel and God, it was meant to show Israel's neighbors that this is what the God of the Bible looks like. This is how he loves his people. This is how his people loves them. This is what a spiritual marriage with God can look like. And there comes these times throughout the Old Testament, a couple times throughout the Old Testament, when God describes his relationship with Israel as having gone through a divorce. And he says, man, the reason Israel and I are divorced right now is because Israel's having an affair on me. Israel's having an affair with other gods. And there would be these moments in Israel's history as the bride where they would worship other gods and sacrifice to other gods and follow other gods. And God says, man, it feels like you're having a spiritual affair and that we're going through a spiritual divorce. And what God would say to them is where it all started was spiritual lust. You desired for another God to do and be what you didn't believe I could do and be. And so you sought those gods, you worshiped those gods, you sacrificed to those gods, and you ended up giving your life to them. It's as though you had an affair on me. And it started with your desire. It started with spiritual lust. And God is heartbroken over it because he is the groom. And he says, Israel, you are supposed to be my 
bride. And this is what, what Proverbs earlier is teaching us, that all the pain and fire and destruction that comes through an affair, God has personally experienced it with Israel. That throughout the Old Testament, when they're worshiping and serving these other gods, God's like, man, you cheated on me with them spiritually, and now we've gone through a divorce. The idea carries forward into the New Testament. In the New Testament, the dom- dominant image of us as the church is that we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, and that is the image. The church is meant to be a people, not a place. But these people are demonstrating, as the bride, we are demonstrating what it means to love the groom, and the groom is loving us, and we're submitting to the groom, and the groom is laying down his life for us, and it's meant to kind of demonstrate this gospel message. But throughout the New Testament, again, You see the church dragged into sin, serving other gods, buying into works righteousness. They spiritually lusted after things other than God and they aren't the image of the bride that God wanted them to be. So Jesus is saying, I'm trying to be the groom and you're the bride, but you're following after these other things. You're not being the example of a people that love God and are loved by God that I want you to be. Now listen, the church is not the only entity called into this illustration. The church is the dominant image of that in the New Testament. But as individuals, when you're interacting with your neighbors, as individuals, we are called to be like the bride, loving God, being loved by God in a marriage relation, a spiritual marriage with him. We are meant to be a demonstration of that. But this is also true of our marriages. I think one of the great reasons there is so much misunderstanding in our culture about marriage is that we have a misunderstanding about the purpose of marriage. And when you understand the purpose of marriage, Paul's words will make a whole lot more sense. Let me show you this text. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, you're not left out here. Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Look at this. It's a profound mystery. The purpose of marriage, it's a mystery to many. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's Ephesians 5. So what is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is not your happiness. I think a lot of people believe that. The purpose of marriage, according to the scriptures, the purpose of marriage is to be a living demonstration of the gospel. It is to be an illustration of a God who loves his people and a people who serve their God out of love. That is the dominant 
purpose and reason for marriage. Just like the church, just like individuals, we are called to this in marriage, that we are a living, breathing demonstration of the gospel, of a God who loves his people and a people who love their God who serve out of that, out of that role. And so according to Paul, there are different roles that are played in this illustration in a marriage. There's the role of love. This is directed specifically to the husbands in Paul's text, but obviously both parties in a marriage are called to love. But he talks about this love that a husband can bring to a marriage that is just like, as an example, for how Christ loves the church. It is sacrificial, It lays down one's life. It shows this world what a love for Christ can look like, what Christ's love looks like in a real life relationship. Men, this is a high calling, but it's one that you are called to. To love your wife like Christ loves the church. Because you understand that this marriage does not just exist for your happiness and your joy and for you, but that this is instead you are creating an illustration for your children, for your neighbors, for the world of what the gospel is. That we are a gospel-centered people. We believe that Christ left heaven and came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He gave his life for us on the cross. And we are gospel-centered in everything, especially our marriages. And so this marriage is a beautiful union of two people who are like, we're going to demonstrate what the gospel is. And the husband says, watch what I do in the way that I love my wife. So there's the role of love. There's the role of submission. Right Now, I've heard a lot of guys in marriage counseling over the years having marriage problems, and they're like, would you show my wife Ephesians? I'm like, dude, you're barking up the wrong tree. Because submission is directed at both parties of the marriage. Did you notice that? The very first verse of that text is, submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. And then wives, submit to your husbands. How? As you do to the Lord. Why? Because you are demonstrating the church's role in the marriage to Jesus that we are submitting to him and to his will and to his ways. And so when both parts of a marriage enter into this sort of purpose for marriage, that our marriage is gonna be a demonstration of the gospel, our kids won't have a hard time understanding the gospel because they see us. They won't have a hard time understanding about a God who loves them because they saw how dad loved mom. They won't have a hard time understanding about a church that submits to the will of Christ because they saw parents trying to out-submit each other, out-serve one another because they understood this high calling of marriage. So when both parts of a marriage do this and they enter into the marriage and they say, man, because we're a demonstration of the gospel, watch, I'm gonna out-serve you. I'm gonna out-submit you. I'm gonna lay down my life for you. It makes the marriage work. So I'm preaching hard. I know. Is everyone okay? It's a mix of anger and something else. I can't quite read the room, but all right. Um, The purpose of marriage is not your happiness. It is this misunderstanding that has led to the ridiculousness surrounding marriage in this culture. Because everybody's out to be served and to be loved and and, and to have their will and their way. Paul even says the purpose is a mystery to some. 
But he says, because you're a gospel-centered people, it's not a mystery to you. It's not a mystery to you. He said, I'm talking about Christ and the church. I thought you were talking about marriage. No, 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 no. I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's a mystery to some. It is not a mystery to you. To the, to, to the Christians, we understand we are gospel-centered people. It is everything to us because we understand Jesus loves us and served us and forgave us and laid down his life for us. It changes every single thing. Our friendships, our family, our work life, our marriages. We are a living, breathing example of the gospel Loving each other, submitting to each other, serving one another. This is the purpose of marriage. Now listen, it results in your joy. The purpose of it is not your happiness. We go cuckoo when we, when we think that, all right? All of a sudden we start demanding to be served, demanding our way, demanding things go our way. But when we understand this and we're trying to outserve and outlove and lay down our lives for one another, the result is your joy. So, I think it's easy to see how adultery would affect this illustrative calling. But Jesus will go on to say, you know what lust is? It's heart adultery. It is a desire, lust is a desire that chips away at our true marriage calling. It's a desire whose basis isn't loving the other person. It isn't serving them. Lust is an attribute that is most worried about me and my joy and my happiness and me being taken care of. Lust is not the path forward to what God is trying to accomplish through marriage. So don't underestimate the power desire can have on a marriage. Sometimes like, what is the problem? Desire, it's a victimless crime. When you consider the calling of marriage is to love and serve like Jesus loves and serves the church. It's easy to see how desire could begin to lead us away from that high calling. Lust is an obvious example, but greed is another. Work is another. Control is another. It is easy to see how any number of desires could begin to lead us away from our true calling to love and lay down our life and serve. James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And look at this. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We don't want any desire to carry us away from God's calling on our lives, especially our marriages and our relationship to him. I know I introduced this 15 minutes ago, but let me come back to it. This is why God cares. He's not trying to spoil your fun. He's not a fuddy-duddy, old word, I know. He's not a killjoy. He has a plan and purpose for marriage. And this isn't just true, by the way, for married people. Single people, right now, you are nursing desires that will someday bring the will be the desires that you bring into your marriage. Make sure you bring in the right desires. Make sure that you bring into your marriage a desire to love sacrificially, 
to serve unconditionally and to be the person God created you to be. As a single person, that, those desires are being nursed right now. Right now, they are. It's happening in real time. And if you have a desire that is entitled or self-consumed or lustful, listen to what that, the path that that desire is leading down because you, are bring, you will bring someday desire into a marriage. And we get a choice to nurse the desires that we want to. So you can begin right now to say, man, I'm going to start to live a sacrificial life, a loving life. I'm going to begin to lay down my life for others. I am going to nurse the right desires so that someday my marriage partner will be glad I did. I won't be entitled. I won't be self-consumed. I won't be lustful. Instead, I will be bringing in the correct desire into a marriage. There's this story in John 6 that I come back to again and again. Jesus is at a healing pool. And the kind of cultural assumption of this healing pool was that the first one into the healing pool each day would be healed. Well, there was a paralyzed man there, and he could never make it to the pool fast enough. And Jesus happens onto the scene, and he turns to the man, and he says, you remember, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And I think... It's a really important question. We wonder why God cares about this issue. A a secondary question is, do I care about this issue? Do I care about the way desire is affecting my marriage? Do I care about, if you're single, the way desire might affect my future marriage? Do I care about it? And it's an important question to ask, especially when it comes to lust. Is, do you want to stop? Do you want to nurse the right desires? Because I can promise you, in years and years of counseling, not everyone does. Not everyone does want to stop. But for those of you that do, those of you that say, man, that you're convicted right now, that my desires are leading me astray, lust is leading me astray, I'm not setting myself up with my desire to, be, to have the type of marriage that Paul describes in Ephesians, Jesus gives incredible advice in verses 29 and 30 of that Matthew passage. He says, man, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, do away with it. It's better to lose one part of your body. And I think it's important. Jesus is not uh, recommending or promoting masochistic practices or self-mutilation. We sometimes forget that Jesus, like any speaker, could be hyperbolic, and that's what he's being here. What he's saying is, one of the things you can do when it comes to lust, if you feel like it's affecting your marriage or your future marriage, is control your environment. Lust is very predictable. You don't have to control every hour of your day. There's probably a few select hours where you are most tempted and, and it tends to show up maybe even in the same ways every single time. Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. There was a tradition that if you wanted, because of the lack of electricity and ability to warm water, that you would put the bathtub up high, like up on a roof even, uh, so that it would sit in the sun all day in the Middle East. And by uh, nighttime, it would be moderately warm. I like scalding hot, but you know, it, it wouldn't be that. It, it, w- it would be moderately warm. And so people a lot of times would bathe at night after the water had been warm throughout the day. And there's a story in the Old Testament about King David where he's hanging out on the roof. And he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. I, you know, make of that whatever you want, but, right? And one of the questions of that text becomes, what's he doing up there? He's being a peeping David. That's what he's doing. <laughs> right? That's why he's up there. 
And this eventually leads to murder and adultery and eventually, essentially murder. But here would be the advice of Jesus. If you're really like, man, I know desires leading me astray, you might say here today. And here would be the very simple advice of your Savior. Stop going to the roof. What are you doing on that roof? Right? Stop going up there. And so he's encouraging us to change our habits. So like, if a relationship around the water cooler is turning flirtatious or desire, uh, it's filling up with a desire that is inappropriate, I think Jesus' simple recommendation to us would be, hey, could you take your break at 10.30 instead of 10? Do you really need your water break or your coffee break right in that moment? Pay attention to your desire. Desire is going to impact either your marriage or your future marriage. Right? If, when you, if there's a certain time of day that you're bored, why don't you go serve at a church or in the community or whatever and get out of your house for those hours of the day or web blockers or accountability partners. There's a lot of ways that we can change our habits. And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus would go on to say is that we're not just going to stop previous habits. We're going to replace habits. Right? A lot of times the message is stop. Right? Stop. Stop. And, and it's not that easy. We have to replace habits, not just stop habits. So we're going to start new and healthier habits. Uh, reading our Bibles. I know this sounds like a very churchy thing to say, but I believe it works. Pray to God to change our hearts and our minds because that's what he does. It's not just about killing desire. It's about finding new and better desires. And I want you to know, do not ever underestimate in this area the power of repentance. One of the things when we walk down a bad path that is affecting our marriage or affecting our life or we think it's going to affect our future marriage, whatever, the case, whatever situation you're in here right now, one of the tools that God has given us when we kind of go down that path is a tool called repentance. To confess our sins to him. It says he is, remember what it says, faithful and just to forgive our sin. And so he gives us this tool called repentance to name a sin to him and say, God, I know this is not your plan for me. I know this is not your desire for me, but I've already gone down and now I'm confessing it to you. And he says, I will forgive your sin. David later, after all that happened with David, he later wrote a psalm, Psalm 51, you can read it later today, where he is just like, man, God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And God shows up to a prayer like that. And so if you have found your desires have run amok a bit, we're about to enter into a time here where just confession and repentance to God is a tool that you have. Maybe somebody that you really love and trust, you could confess to them as well. And God, and say, God, I want a new heart and I want new desires. And God is faithful and he will walk with you. It will not be easy. It will be hard. Because Lust is one of those deadly sins that I was talking about a week or so ago that we just don't want to name it or admit to it. We just don't want to. There's a lot of shame regarding it. But lust, uh, repentance is the tool God gives us to deal with it. To name it to God, to say what it is, and allow God to begin to change our heart and our mind. And he's faithful to do that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus, and I want to pray right now for, for our marriages, our future marriages, right now that we would begin to see in a new way this thing you want to do through them. 
that you want us to be this example of the gospel where there's these different roles that we get to play of love and submission and service. And I want to pray for the people in this room that have kids that their kids would never wonder about whether or not God loves them because they saw their parents' marriage. Or they would never wonder about serving God because of their parents' marriage. Because they saw that example. I want to pray that we would be that example in a world where marriage is in full-blown crisis and our culture is so confused that right now we would be a people that are illustrative. Maybe right now is not the time to be angry and shouting, but it's a time to be illustrative of your gospel. People are like, man, I want to attack them because they're Christ followers, but I can't deny how they love each other. I can't deny how they serve each other. I can't deny what they have, and I'm curious to learn more. Maybe now is the time for that. So I pray as we leave this place that we would pay attention to our desire. We'd confess it if it needs to be confessed. We'd receive grace if we need grace because you are faithful, and that we would also receive your Holy Spirit to empower us and help us to choose a better way. We thank you that Jesus is all of those things. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together. And this is that opportunity that I was talking to you about. We're just a time with you and Jesus to be able to say, man, I want to confess this to you. And this is a, a, a remembrance of the moment he went to the cross. To forgive that sin. That's why he did it. It's to forgive it. And so right now we have an opportunity to confess it and receive grace. But also, like I said in the prayer, to receive the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us to manage our desire to bring the right desires back to our marriage. Desires uh, that will serve it well, help it to grow, and help it to be healthy. So we're going to pass the communion out. You can just hold those two emblems, the bread representing his body, the juice representing his blood, and then I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll receive it together as a church family. Body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. No shame in this place. Just your grace. We're thankful for it. And as we get ready to leave, if we are convicted, we would be convicted and not condemned. And that we would understand that maybe some things need to change. But your power is made perfect in our weakness. And we can execute those changes because of your grace. And we're grateful for it. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand and sing one last song, okay?